Hello and welcome to Missing an Audience. In each episode, a different guest from the arts world will talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected their practice, how they see things changing going forwards, and about their memories of being part of or creating for audiences. Our aim with this podcast is to hear from and reach as many different people working or studying in the arts as possible, to connect over what we miss and have lost, what we have to look forward to, and what needs to change. We also hope to spread awareness of charities or arts groups struggling at this time. We need the arts and we need audiences. Culture is for entertainment, protest, education, therapy, employment, inspiration and connection. It must survive. This episode contains brief, strong language and passing references to themes that some listeners may find upsetting. Our guest today is the artistic director of the Actors Touring Company, Matthew Zia. From 2014 to 2017, Matthew was Associate Artistic Director at Manchester's Royal Exchange Theatre, where he established their Artists' Outreach and Development Programme, Open Exchange. He has worked extensively as a director, composer and sound designer at Theatre Royal Stratford East, where he was a board member from 2000 to 2009 and interim associate director from 2009 to 2011. He is a trustee of Cardboard Citizens and Artistic Directors for the Future and also a founding member of Act for Change. He has been on the judging panel for both the Bruntwood Prize and the Alfred Fagan Award. Matthew is a past recipient of the Young Vic's Genesis Future Director Award and the Regional Theatre Young Director Scheme. His directing credits include Amsterdam, One Night in Miami, Blood Knot, Shabeen, Frankenstein, Wishless, Sisway Banzi is Dead, and Blue Orange, starring Daniel Kaluuya. In 2001, Matthew became the first DJ to join BBC Radio One Extra, where he was known for promoting artists such as Estelle, Professor Green, and Plan B. Under his pseudonym Excalibur, Matthew performed a headline set at the London 2012 Paralympic opening ceremony. Hello, I'm Jake Leonard, the creator and host of this podcast, and I'm a freelance theatre director. Welcome, Matthew. How are you? Uh, yeah, good, Jake, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. I don't know, it's been a crazy eight weeks, nine weeks, ten weeks, eleven weeks. <laughs> However long it's been, it's been crazy. Uh, and it's not been what I thought it would be. Uh, and things keep happening within it, so you think, you know, okay, we're going to stop making work and we're all going to go home and we're going to be on lockdown. Uh, and then you hear that, that the person you are is more at risk from the thing that is out there. And then you... Uh, realize also that that's because of systemic racism and then you remember that that's always been there and then you have a couple of traumatic weeks very recently so yeah i'm on a roller coaster i think at the moment and just kind of going with it grieving all the lost things the many many lost things both for myself and other people friends and peers and colleagues uh apprehensive and worried about the sector that we all care so much about and what that becomes, but also wildly optimistic that within within ends are beginnings uh, and within changes 
is opportunity. So I don't know, I'm, you know, trying to remain as optimistic as possible. It's yeah. worth remembering, isn't it? That there's a crisis, like, there's yeah. a global crisis. And I think people are like, all this stuff about like, you're working from home. No, 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 you're not working from home. You're attempting to work from home. If you can mm. still work from home, whilst also running a school at the kitchen table and a house and, a, you know, it's just like the chaos of it all is is very present at all times. Yeah. I'm very happy if I remember to put some socks on. I don't know. I, I've, I've not been able to read anything that's not connected to the current moment. Um, I've struggled to watch things because my suspension of disbelief falters as soon as anyone moves near to each other uh, and I worry <laughs> about them and they infect each other. Um, so yeah, like, I don't know, like uh, consuming creativity has been difficult for me and being creative has been tricky. Like the first six weeks I was so despondent um, and like unfocused, just really unfocused. I've also, I found like old hobbies. I've gone back to old hobbies, which has been lovely. So I've been making some music and playing music and uh, got a massive fascination with like illusion and mind reading. And so I've been delving back into that and trying to see if I could learn the tarot cards and what that is, symbol and meaning and inferring meaning from symbol and not in a spiritual way, but yeah, like I'm like weird. I've gone like into different places for creativity, I guess. Yeah, because I mean, you, you were talking about it earlier, um, but in some ways, it, this might be a bit of an opportunity to, to change things and to to refocus what we do. Um, I mean, is there anything in particular, <laughs> that's a massive question, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to see change or go, going forward or? And that's putting you on the spot there as well. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it is, but it's not like, it's nothing I've not been thinking about, you know, mm -hmm. for the last eight weeks or however long. Uh, yeah. I keep calling it eight weeks, no matter how long it ends up being. That's why I've decided lockdown. That's what it is. <laughs> that's what we can take. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you work in theatre and you say good morning to people, no matter what time of the day it is. You know, it's that sort of thing. Um, eight weeks, and I'm sticking with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been you know involved in so many interesting conversations. Uh, or as I'm calling them, kind of banquet tables in the great hall that is how do we fix British theatre. Um, so there's the producing and touring network that meet every week. Uh, and out of that came the freelance task force that has been put together, uh, essentially to create another banqueting table in that space with a different group of people around it. Um, and I think that is a key part of it. Like, how do we empower more the artists who are... The, depending on which figure you look at, 50 to 70% of the industry. Um, in terms of, in terms of like risk, I guess, and hierarchy uh, and support so that when things like this happen, they're more enfranchised to make the decisions uh, for their own, for their own best, uh, path, I guess, you know, kind of way forward, uh, sense of protection. I think we're discovering lots of that. And I think what we're discovering in this moment, of course, is that all of the marginalization that, has, that exists within society and therefore exists within the sector becomes more acute when we go into crisis and we shrink down uh, as we move through recession. 
we start to look at bottom line and and um, popular popularism and commercialism and all of these things that we know the people who have the majority of power uh, they think that looks like a particular thing uh, I think many of us know that it doesn't and there are many cases that support a truly diverse workforce audience um, front of house back of house on stage you know all of that stuff makes for more sell sellable work ultimately if it is about the bottom dollar but also all the work that is done with communities you know i think again we're looking at this little bit of fear that happens on the stage at the moment and going when do we reopen like reopening is just about buildings and it's just about bums on seats and people staring at stages like it's not about all of that other work that happens uh with participants and community groups and and uh soft skills again confidence building and empowering people in their own artistry um uh, and self-expression and and healing and catharsis and all of the things that art does that aren't so easily quantifiable uh in graphs and charts and then presentable to a minister who has to make a decision so i think there's like a number of areas to focus i think we need to get a big massive lump sum of cash from the treasury ultimately uh that needs to go to dcms who then need to work out how they deliver it across the cultural sector um then i think the arts council need to think very uh deeply and in a considered fashion about what they call the creative case for diversity um and i think it's a slightly kind of washed out idea and that ultimately if you don't have a diverse organization then you're upholding systemic racism let's move to that argument let's move to the business case for diversity which is something that roy alexander wise is always talking about which is a brilliant thing which is how bbc one extra was formed you know uh they looked at the data and they said there is enough need in this country for this radio station they took that to government they took that you know because it's public subsidy again uh, and they went right here's your ring fenced cash for that off you go uh, and who should do it the people who it's for should do it um and i think we need to be thinking a lot more like that in theater uh you know these kind of age-old institutions that have diversity policies and agendas and i mean i'm not just talking ethnicity i'm talking social economics i'm talking gender uh sex religion everything protected characteristics and non-protected characteristics because of course socioeconomics is not a protected characteristic and class is not uh which is very handy for those at the top of the class system of course um so i want to like if i'm honest i want to burn that all down to the ground quite quickly uh and and rebuild something that feels more empowering for the many different component parts of it less pyramid in form uh more rectangular in form maybe uh a rectangular rectangle on its side let's turn it on its side um a, a low flat hierarchy i think but there's so there's so much within that in terms of like how you dismantle yeah. the many power structures that sit within the sector and of course our sector of course thinks that it's like wonderfully liberal because mm -hmm. it is part of the charitable sector, uh, particularly in the subsidized arts. So very often people think just by by default, by working in the sector, they're doing the good work. And it's like, no, 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 now you're here, you've got to go to work. It's understanding that systemic racism or institutional racism means that if you are in the institute or the system, 
you are part of the problem. Yeah. You are, I am, we all are. Like, we have to fix it. That's how it works. Um, I love, I like, I've got this little metaphor that, like, um, as many people do, that, you know, COVID was like, uh, go, and, go and sit in your room. You've been grounded. Think about what you've done. Uh, and then, like, eight weeks into it, your mum came up and knocked on the door and went, and all that racism as well. You're staying in here for longer. And shut the door and stop. You know, it's like... And it, and it required that. It required us to be in this situation and then for that to happen, for people to listen in this in this active way that they appear to be listening now, in this different, nuanced way that people seem to be listening in. I hope the action follows through, as I, as I keep saying to people. What I have to do to fight racism as a man with brown skin is kind of arm myself with critical race theory to understand why I'm treated the way I'm treated and how people have been treated throughout history. Uh, and then I have to live that and call it out with every cell of my body, with every second of life I have. And it's going to require everyone to do that, uh, in their families, in their workplaces, on the street, on public transport. And it's not easy. It's, it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. Uh, and it makes us sweat. And sometimes we feel like we're putting ourselves at risk of, of fracturing a relationship or uh, an opportunity in work. And I think there just has to be enough of us that say, no, it's okay. If, if you are pushed out of a position or an opportunity because you call something out, we hope that there are enough of us that will back somebody and stand behind them to say that's not right. But it, like I say, it requires, it's, the, it's fatiguing and tiring because it does require constant vigilance. And from the offset of every single project, the moment anyone thinks about a thing that they're going to do, think who should be at the table, who should be in the room, who should be on the stage, who should be off the stage. It's like the idea that political correctness is anything other than kindness, isn't it? You know, it's just thinking, oh, the words that I use affect people uh, and I can use them to be really mean or spiteful or I can be clumsy with them or I can tread carefully. I'll pick one of those three paths, which I think is to tread carefully and know that every now and then I'll be a bit clumsy and work out why I was clumsy, apologise and see what I can learn from that. The platitudes that came out so quickly, these kind of empty statements of good intent and goodwill, but without understanding that you've spent 10 years operating an organisation, running an organisation that has a massive duty of care to people and is psychologically damaging them and they are paying for the fucking privilege of being psychologically damaged. And whoever you are as their leader have also had so many missteps uh, and, and mistakes and you've been called out throughout that 10 years and you've never dealt with it. So why now, when the searchlight is on you, are you saying oh, absolutely, Black Lives Matter, and we do everything we can to stand by uh, B-A-M-E. It's like, whoa, 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 you've already messed it up there because B is one letter of B-A-M-E. Bane people from the Isle of Bane So clearly a division between white and everyone else. Find something that reframes that narrative that doesn't have the word minority in it when the minority of which you speak is a global majority. It's only, you know, it's, I think we know what it all is. It's uh, recovering from colonialism is what we're all attempting to do, I think. I love that, you know, Rennie Edo Lodge's book is the number one best-selling book in the UK, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which is much more complex than that title would, would have you believe. Bizarre that she's the first ever, I believe, black British author to go to the top of the of the book charts in the UK in 2020 with a book about racism, kind of <laughs> highlighting all of the problems in a, a wonderfully ironic gesture. It's all the things, you know, like my other half works in TV, said the other day, I've never had a black boss. And then I was thinking, oh, I've only had one black teacher in my whole schooling life. And I went to school in East London in, you know, Wolfham Forest and Newham, massively diverse areas. 
I don't know if you saw uh, Fahinti Belugan's piece, little piece that the Bush released, which is like a piece of digital theatre, but it's a text conversation between him and a white friend, and they were both at a party where there were, I think, only a few black people and lots of white people, and they were using the M-word, singing along with songs. Mm. Uh, and he kind of has, a, it's a nine-minute exchange of text messages, uh, and his friend says at the end, again, a kind of wonderfully well-intentioned person is what you receive from it, but just so misguided, uh, says, uh, this is a brilliant debate to have. And you're like, oh, it's not a debate for us. It yeah. costs us. It's exhausting to explain why it hurts us so much to be in a room full of people using that word that we use, but, you know, well, well, I don't, personally, but, you know, they can be used by those who have been oppressed in the same way that uh, women might bandy around the word bitch between themselves, you know? It's like reclamation of the slur and all that stuff, mm. useful or not, up to the individual who chooses to do it. Um, but it's just, I love that line in that in that piece. Uh, this is a great debate to have. It's like, again, misunderstanding the human uh, emotional cost to having that conversation for the 7,000th time. The art I make is a form of activism, all of it every single bit of it and it's an activism that is fundamentally connected to the, the various traumas i have felt I, I live with which are connected to my race and my class to say class i think it's easier to talk about poverty and being growing up poor and now i'm going oh cool okay well maybe should i just be an activist or should i is there a different way of doing art or you know throwing up a load of other questions but it's so like you look at the the work and you look at all of the work including the music and the hip-hop and all of that stuff and what i was doing when i was a hip-hop artist was i guess exploring my blackness at a global level so i was playing independent worldwide underground hip-hop that was what i loved uh, of course coming out of black america finding it here and then finding it in france and brazil and all around the world and who 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 are these people you know who are all of these people brocars black dudes from america from brazil from paris from the uk so I'm, i was amplifying their story you know because i was the dj not the, the writer not the lyricist so i was just taking their stories putting them on the turntable and playing them either on a record a radio show or to a room full of people now what I'm doing, what am I doing? I'm taking stories, very often written by marginalised human beings about their lived experience, and I'm amplifying them by putting them in rooms full of people. I hate the phrase gender-blind and colour-blind mm -hmm. casting. And no one is asking you to not see that person's gender, sex, or tonality of their skin, or their disability, or the thing that makes them visibly not um, Grayson Perry's default man, you know? I think what we're asking, instead is to now look at it through this new prism. How does this refract that character, uh, the things we thought about this story, this metaphor, whatever it is? So all that stuff about, like, uh, no, you just hire the best person for the job. No, this is art, man. Rocket science, you hire the best person for the job. Theater, you find out what it is you want to say, and then you work out how to say it. I was in a Zoom chat yesterday that irritated me ever so slightly, where someone said, but that's the thing, you know, I think we've got to get kids to learn proper art. And I just remember, I just I bristled at the phrase proper art, because I think I know what that is code for, you know? High art, and there are, and there's, like, playing an instrument, a classical instrument, like a violin, and then there's, like, like banging on a NPC to make a beat. People who use the phrase proper art don't consider the, the latter to be art. One of the other things that um, we're doing on this uh, podcast is asking people for audience experiences, um, whether it's them as an audience member or um, them as a creator. 
with the response from an audience. What comes to mind is the energy of the audience at Theatre Royal Stratford East, which is an audience because of its wonderfully varied demographic makeup, often talks back to the stage, a bit like my mum talking back to the TV. And so, uh, how do they come? I think it was some sort of glorious press night. It was, because um, Jimmy Cliff was there, and he sang on stage at the end of the night. He sang The Harder They Come, and what a moment. I think Perry Hensel, who had written the original film, was there. It's kind of maybe a couple of years before he passed away. And I'm sat in the auditorium, and by chance, I'm sat next to my uncle, my uh, on my dad's side of the family, so he's from Jamaica. My uncle is as cultured as they come, goes to the theatre all the time, involved in many music projects, and kind of lots of black culture and Jamaican cultural works and gallery spaces and things like that. And we sat down and Ivan, who has left the countryside where his mum's lived, mum lives to go in, into Kingston to make a career as a musician, comes back 12 years later to see his mother. She's developed cataracts and she's sat in the dark. There's a knock at the door uh, and Ivan goes, Mum, Mum, we'll come back. And she goes, Ivan, is that you? And my uncle stands up Rose, Rose H. You don't recognize your own son? Whole audience crack up. It's just like, I love it. Like, the suspension of disbelief is is there. He's, he's there. He's in the countryside, in Jamaica, in the house with them. Um, and I love that. I love, like, I love all of that. I love people crying, laughing, feeling, being. In a moment that won't exist, the moment it's over, you know? I love that ephemeral quality that, that theatre has. A shamanic kind of ritual of understanding and catharsis to go through something a, a, a moment the other one that really comes to mind but it's so different it was at edinburgh at the festival so it was a piece in the international festival directed by yale farber and it was called nabaya uh and it was about the uh horrific sexual attack and murder of a young woman in india on a bus and this piece of theater was like maybe seven or eight women who had been the victims of sexual violence stood on stage they just kind of bared witness mainly to their own stories and i'm sat in this auditorium sobbing like not sniffling not like shaking in this space and i just feel this hand on my shoulder and a tissue come over and i'm just like oh i love humans and then you started to realize that she was crying this woman behind me was crying as well and like the whole auditorium and this woman on stage and we're all going through this massively painful experience with this woman and the bravery and the strength to stand there and give this to us the generosity of it you know so i think that like i think we go to the theater to feel don't we ultimately so i think that togetherness those moments of togetherness which is always so far as i say that so far removed from some of the auditoriums i sit in full of kind of people tutting and looking around and shuffling in their seats and not just letting people be with the piece so the last thing that we ask uh, guests to do on this podcast is talk about uh, a particular charity um i know you've got one in mind yeah um so i was thinking uh, with regard to the current moment with i guess the kind of uh, pressure trauma that lots of people are living through at the moment there is a, a i guess it's a charity it's just been set up uh they're certainly taking donations uh, and i think people should support the funding of them called blackmindsmatteruk.com uh, who are aiming to provide free at the point of use uh, therapy, psychological therapy, counselling for people of the African diaspora uh, who feel like they may need support in this time. Uh, and those professionals will also be uh, black, from what I understand. Um, just looking what it says on their website, we have put this together to enable as many black people to get specialised help 
We aim to fulfill this by connecting black individuals and families with professional mental health services across the UK. BlackMindsMatterUK.com. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. It's been fun. Uh, staring out the ring at the windows, it absolutely buckets down. Remembering fonder times in the theatre and imagining some hopefully optimistic ones on the horizon. by Jake Leonard, with music by Dave Morris, publicity design by Ben Hollands, and voiceover by Rebecca Klee. We'd love to hear your favourite audience experiences and how COVID-19 has affected you. So feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at missinganord. If you want to donate or find out more about the charities our guest was talking about, you can find the links in the description below. In the meantime, keep safe. Keep well and be kind. Next time, we're joined by BBC Writers Academy member and 2018 BBC Slam Poetry Champion, Jess Green. I think the thing that makes me sad is thinking of all the different things that could be so easily lost. Yes, it will be obviously really sad if West End theatres close and we lose those really large-scale productions of, like, Hamilton or The Lion King. But I think about poetry nights where, I mean, I've seen it running Find the Right Words, you know, a lot of our audience members coming along and doing, like, five minutes on stage and having, like, 12 people listen to them one Wednesday evening a month is such a massive deal. Or you get someone who comes along at like 21 and, and has their first ever experience performing on stage and then like five years later they're like winning a poetry slam or in a play. I slag off the weird niche stuff when it's too up its own arse and thinks that it's going to change the world. But we so need the weird niche stuff as well, don't we? Oh.